0: There it goes. My microphone didn't want to come on for some reason. And that would not be conducive to you hearing me, but I think you can now. We're glad that you're here this morning and we're thankful for your, your presence and I hope that something we say, something we do today can be a source of strength or encouragement to you. And I hope you'll make your plans to be back with us here again this evening just as a reminder our early bird singings at five o'clock I'd like to encourage you to be here for that I know everyone that has come to that over the last few months that we started doing it has had had a great time singing together. In keeping with upcoming events to make you aware of and asking for your participation I want to announce for the first time here, we, we put it on Facebook this week, we have it in the bulletin today, but an important upcoming work. House to House, Heart to Heart, that's a publication that we participate in, that we mail out on a quarterly basis, is organizing what they're calling the first annual Brotherhood-wide door-knocking day, and their goal is to get 200 Churches of Christ all across the country out knocking doors on the very same day, Saturday, October 5th. We've committed to participating in that, and I'd like to invite you to be part of that. Now, I know it's not necessarily easy. I know door knocking is not everyone's most favorite activity. I can tell you myself I would much rather this audience be packed full of people or even ten times that many and get up and speak to them than I would go knock on a stranger's door. They say that fear of public speaking is the number one fear of uh, people in the United States and yet I'm completely comfortable with that but I'm paralyzed when I have to go talk to someone I don't know. It takes me a while to warm up to people. I'm just not comfortable in those situations. I don't know what to say to them. So I know it's not easy. I share your sympathy, or I share that feeling with you. I sympathize. But I'm going to do it anyway. And I know that it's not necessarily the most effective form of evangelism. Maybe you're thinking, well, you know, we used to do door knocking. It doesn't work. And I'm not suggesting it should be our only tool in the toolbox. But in conjunction with other efforts, it can be effective. But we need you for this to be effective. And when I say we need you, that's not us announcing it week by week for the next two months and then when the day comes up, forgetting to show up. And it's not a matter of saying, well, maybe I'll be there, or maybe not. No, this takes planning, this takes organization. We need you to be committed to this. So if that sounds like something you want to be involved in, we're going to give more details over the coming weeks and we're going to have some planning for it. And I want to encourage you... Uh, to get involved with it, and even if you're not involved in it, going to door to door, keep that effort in your prayers so that hopefully it will bear fruit in this community. Whether it's that project or others, we all need to dedicate ourselves to being useful to the Lord. There are millions of Christians all over the world today, and some are filling places of importance in God's kingdom while others are sitting idly by wasting their God-given potential. What is it that makes the difference? I have to believe that all of us as Christians would like to be useful to the Lord. I find it hard to imagine that anyone would come to Christ, that is, giving their allegiance to him, committing to live his kind of life without hoping to be able to do something to contribute to his cause, to be as active and as valuable in his work as possible. So the fact that some are useful and some, to be frank, are relatively useless must be a matter of something other than than intention. must be something other than what we really, in our deepest heart of hearts, would desire to be and to do. So with that in mind, I'd like for us to think together for a few moments this morning about how God can use us. What kind of person does the Lord use? And hopefully if we've been somewhat passive, somewhat inactive, for the lord's cause maybe by considering some of these necessary qualities of life we can become more active more useful in his work let's begin by considering some new testament examples of those chosen by the lord for their particular work in acts chapter 6 we read a story there of some early dissension in the jerusalem church The Hellenistic Jews, that is, the the Greek speaking Jewish Christians, are concerned because they feel that their widows are being neglected in the daily distribution of food. That oversight was called to the attention of the apostles, who say in verse number two that they summoned the full number of disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Whom we will appoint to this duty, seven members of the Jerusalem Church were selected from out of that vast multitude of, of thousands at this point. What were the criteria for their selection? Notice that there's three qualities given: they need to be men of good repute or good reputation. This makes me think of the qualifications for elders given in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 7 where the elder is said to be one who is well thought of by outsiders. You need to be someone that the community as a whole recognizes as someone of integrity. Next, these are to be men who are full of the Holy Spirit. Now, when we think of being full of the Holy Spirit, we tend to think primarily in terms of miraculous manifestations of the Spirit. But do you realize that the New Testament actually places far greater emphasis on the ethical role of the Spirit? That is, when the Spirit of God lives within us, we will live in a certain way. We might think particularly of the fruit that the Spirit bears in our life. Listed in Galatians chapter 5, the Spirit of God lives in you. If he bears fruit, that fruit will be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. And then these men need to be full of wisdom. That suggests that they'll exercise sound judgment in thinking through whatever situation they may encounter in trying to carry out their duties. If we flip a few pages forward in Acts, we read of another who was selected to be useful for the Lord, and the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. In chapter 9, verse 15, the preacher Ananias in Damascus is told that he needs to go and to speak to Saul, and he's reluctant to do that because, remember, Saul's been a persecutor of the church. It's dangerous business. But Jesus says to him, Go, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. What made Saul of Tarsus a chosen instrument? Well, think about what we know of the life of this man, whom we better know as the Apostle Paul. He was a man of great natural ability. He was a man who had experienced the best education and training. He was a man of deep loyalty. He was a man of tremendous zeal. A number of other fine qualities that we could mention made Paul useful for the Lord in carrying out this mission. And after his conversion, he was sent to preach to the Gentile world. Acts chapter 13 and verse number 2. Paul and his companion Barnabas are there at the church in Antioch, and while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called him. Paul was a chosen vessel or chosen instrument. Here the Spirit says he's been called for a particular work. It was the qualities of his life that made him peculiarly suited for that work. Or consider just one more example, Christ's selection of his apostles, and we're reading from Luke's account in Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. And the list goes on from there as we're familiar with. Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, John, etc. But you notice what Luke makes very clear here. This is something that was done carefully with intentionality. Jesus spent all night in prayer before selecting these men. And you note that he had a, a great group of disciples already following him. He didn't just pick 12 fellows out at random. From among that larger group of disciples, he chose these 12 specifically to be his apostles. And this calls for some speculation, but we might consider some of the attributes that these men possessed that committed themselves to be chosen by the Lord. Last summer, we had uh, several weeks on Sunday evening where we looked at the lives of the 12. And you can think of your own uh, personal studies of the lives of the apostles. We don't have time to name all the qualities we might name. But think about the boldness of Peter, the courage that he possessed. He absolutely needed that when he stood up as the spokesman for the apostles there in the book of Acts. Or we might think of the zeal of, of Simon, which had once been used to try to bring about Uh, revolutionary overthrow of the Roman government now turned in a new direction, that zeal for Jesus' cause. Think about the loyalty of Thomas, someone who was so devoted to Christ that he was willing to follow him even to death, as he says in John chapter 11. Or think about Andrew's interest in individuals. Andrew who went and brought his brother Peter to Jesus. Andrew who brought Greeks to To see Jesus, Andrew, who brought a boy with loaves and fishes to Jesus, with which he fed a multitude. Andrew would have made a great door knocker, because Andrew was concerned about people on that individual, personal level. All of these men bringing their own particular qualities that made them useful in the Lord's service. When we think about those things, all of these stories we've mentioned, when we think about the New Testament, or the Bible as a whole more generally. And when we think about the characteristics exhibited in the lives of people, we know our own personal experience of those who've been useful in the Lord's cause. We can come up with a list of characteristics that make someone suitable to be used by God. Now, certainly this list isn't exhaustive, But we want to think for a few minutes about some of these qualities that stand out. All of which are qualities that we can cultivate as we strive to be more useful to the Lord. The first thing to note is that the Lord uses the talented. He uses the talented. The Apostle Paul was a man of unusual talent. We already spoke to that. But that's true of so many of these that we've already mentioned here. God seeks those of great natural ability because they have the potential to be the most useful or the most productive, at least, in his work. But then, of course, we remember the parable of the talents. Of course, talents, they are a measure of money, but you remember each one of those servants was entrusted with talents according to his ability, so that speaks to their individual capabilities. That man of five talents was no more acceptable to the Lord than the man of two talents. It didn't make him better. It didn't make him more useful because both of them used what abilities they had to their fullest. And in fact, that man with only one talent would have been just as acceptable to the Lord if he'd only actually put that one talent that he'd been entrusted with to use. We might also remember the illustrations Paul uses in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, comparing the church to a human body. And the point he makes there is that the body has many members. All of them are necessary. We might not think some parts are very important, but then just try to live without them. Things don't function right. Your thumb seems pretty insignificant compared to the rest of your body. It's a small member, but cut it off and then go try to do anything with your hands. Try to pick something up without that thumb. God uses men and women of various talents, abilities, capacities. No one is outside the range of his acceptability. But we need to put what talents we have to his use. Secondly, we see that the Lord uses the trained. We might think of the way that Jesus trained his apostles after he called them, day by day, week after week, month after month, for the better part of three years. Every day he was molding them and shaping them, training them into what God would have them to be to carry out that work after he was gone. Or we might think again here of the apostle Paul. He was highly trained. He'd studied at the feet of Gamaliel in Jerusalem, the most celebrated and respected rabbi in the first century. But not only was Paul trained in the Jewish law, Paul spoke and wrote Greek fluently. Paul was well acquainted with Greek culture to the point that in the book of Acts and in some of his letters we actually find him at times quoting from Greek philosophers and poets. And Paul also realized the importance of training others. Constantly, we find him with co-workers, traveling companions who were younger. Timothy, Titus, Luke, others spring to mind. But not only did he train those, he told those men to go and to train others to come after them, too. Uh, Timothy is instructed that specifically. 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. See, this doesn't stop. It goes on and on and on. Those who are most useful to the Lord are those who've been trained for their task. Keeping with Timothy, he reminds us that the Lord uses people of all ages If we flip over to Acts chapter 16, where he first begins to associate with Paul, Paul came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Timothy was a young man, well-spoken of there, and he continues to follow Paul for decades after this and was extremely useful in his travels. And if we look through Scripture, we see that young people have frequently been highly useful to God's cause. Go back to Genesis and just work your way forward. Joseph was only a teenager when he began to be active for the Lord down in Egypt. Samuel was barely more than a toddler, when he was sent to serve the Lord at the temple. David was a mere shepherd boy when he was chosen to be king over Israel. Josiah was one of the youngest kings, and yet he was one of the most significant because he began a great reform. Daniel was a young man when he stood up to the king and stood up for the Lord in Babylonia. But, of course, having said that, we realize that God also uses the elderly. Moses, the great lawgiver of Israel, was 80 years old when God spoke to him out of the burning bush. Some people think that at 80 years old, they're past time to start slowing down. Moses was just getting started. John was nearly a 100 years old when he wrote the book of Revelation on the island of Patmos. The Lord uses the young, he uses the old, and he uses all of those in between. He wants you to start serving him as soon as you're old enough or young enough to begin. And he wants you to continue serving him as long as you're possibly able. There's a place for those of every age in the Lord's army. Next, we see that the Lord uses the pure. John chapter 1, verse 47, Jesus sees Nathanael, who he would call to be one of his apostles. And we read of Jesus' appraisal of him. Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile or no deceit. Those who have pure, clean lives are needed in the Lord's work. The qualifications of an elder include that he be above reproach or that he be blameless. Or in trying to train Timothy, Paul writes to him, 1 Timothy 5, verse 22, keep yourself pure. Only those who are diligently striving to walk in the light can truly be useful in the Lord's work because it's primarily a spiritual battle against evil. And yet even with that said, we should remember, this is so critical that the presence of evil in someone's life at one point doesn't disqualify them for service. Think about two characters we've mentioned repeatedly today as some of the most productive, the most famous of the Lord's servants in the New Testament, Peter and Paul. Both of them had great sin in their lives at different points. Peter denied his Lord. Paul persecuted Christians even to the death. And yet they're the two key apostles in the book of Acts. Or we could look to the Old Testament and see David, a man who committed adultery, who committed murder to try to cover it up, and yet he was called a man after God's own heart. Why? Because he humbled himself and he repented. That brings us to the next point. Much like David humbled himself, the Lord generally uses the humble. In Luke chapter 18, we have a familiar story Jesus tells about two men who went up to the temple to pray. One of them, a Pharisee, said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, started to list off how great he was. The other, a tax collector, was so ashamed of himself he wouldn't even look up to heaven but instead hid himself and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus evaluated them, and he said that this man, that is the tax collector, went down to his house justified, not the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. There's no place for pride or for egotism in serving the Lord. Only people who realize their own weakness, their own inadequacy can truly be useful for him because we have to realize it's not about me, it's not about any great thing that I can do. I can only be useful to God as he works through me. There's no place for pride in serving God. Next, the Lord uses the dedicated We might think here about John the Baptist, whose life was marked by faithful proclamation in the wilderness to the point that he lived like a wild man out there. Or we might think again of the Apostle Paul, whose dedication was obvious from his conversion. Paul was told that this was going to be difficult. Back in chapter 9, verse 15, where Jesus says to Ananias to go, he's a chosen instrument for me, he also says, I need to show him all the things he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul gave up this promising career as a rising young lawyer, a star among the Jews. And when he gave that up, he held nothing back. He'd been that zealous, tenacious persecutor. But then for the rest of his life, he gave, he gave his possessions. He gave his energies. He gave his wealth. He gave his health. He ultimately gave his life. He was so dedicated to serving the Lord. Only people who are dedicated like that can be of the greatest use to God. Finally, this morning, note that the Lord uses the willing. Let's consider two passages that talk of a clear-cut distinction regarding those who make a decision about Jesus. John chapter 6 and verse number 66, we read that after after this, many of his disciples went back and no longer walked with him. On the other side of the coin, we read in Luke chapter 5 and verse number 11, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. That first passage is in the context of those who'd listened to Jesus explain about the nature of his kingdom. And when he started to tell them what it entailed, they realized it was hard, and they didn't understand. And they didn't want to go after him anymore. But that other passage from Luke chapter 5 tells about a little band of men who were fishing on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus told them, to go and cast their nets again, they'd bring in a big catch. He performed a great miracle there. And that unusual occurrence led them to realize that there was something more going on there than just fishing. And so when Jesus said in the previous verse to Simon, do not be afraid, from now on you will be catching men, it led those men to go after him, to turn from fishing for fish and to go out and start fishing for souls. You see, the point of this is, God can only use those who are willing to serve him. There are a lot of people out there who are talented and who are well-trained, but who are unwilling to serve. And so they're useless to the cause of Christ. Above all of these other qualities we've named, we must have this willingness to do the Lord's work. To be able to say like Isaiah in that text that was read a few minutes ago, who will go for us? Isaiah says, here am I, send me. We all need to have that same willingness, that deep dedication to Christ is the most crucial factor. Age doesn't matter, the level of ability the area of expertise is insignificant. What is significant is one's willingness to go and to work for the Lord. And that should be encouraging to us because this is the only factor of all these we've named that is completely and totally in our control. We have no control over the abilities that we're born with. We might be able to go out from this point forward and get more training, but you can't change the training that you've had already. We certainly can't change our age. We can't hurry up getting older when we're young. And those of you who are older, you can't turn back the clock. We can't go and undo any of those things that we wish we hadn't done. And we can't go back and make a second chance of those opportunities that we've missed. But what we can do is determine the dedication of our hearts, the willingness of our minds. No one who wants to serve the Lord will ever be useless in his service. But we have to want that. No two people are the same. We don't, any of us, have the same talents. And even those who have similar levels of talents might find that they're called to work and Different fields. One serves publicly, another serves privately. One finds that his best area of service is to be able to take the money he's been blessed with and to use it to further the work of the church. Another service is through personal contact with those who aren't yet Christians. Some serve in their business, some serve in the home, some serve in schools, some serve in their profession, and No one has the right to say that their area of service or their level of service is superior to anyone else's. You might not be able to get up here and preach a sermon. Maybe you can't, but maybe you can't. But, you know, you might be just that sort of extroverted personality. You might be that sort of person who is interested in people, who has compassion on others, that will make you a a far more talented person personal evangelist, door knocker than I am. We all have a role to play. It doesn't matter how or where exactly that we serve. What matters is that we serve. And what matters is that we give our best to the Lord. Giving our best to him begins when we give our lives to Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you haven't done that, I want to encourage you to do it today. Put your faith, your trust in Him. Turn to God in repentance. Be buried in the waters of baptism where your sins are washed away, where you're added to God's people, and where you embark on that life of emulating Jesus, living in service to God and to your fellow man. Maybe you're here this morning and you already are a Christian but you haven't been useful to God the way that you ought to be and you need to make changes. Whatever your need may be, if we can help you in any way this morning, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.